are about to listen to Where Your Treasure Is, the podcast where faith and finance meet. Please note that the views expressed are our own and in no way represent any form of financial advice. And remember, investments can go down as well as up. Happy listening. Hello and welcome to Where Your Treasure Is. Today we have an extra special treat. It's another bonus episode, which I like to think of as a mystery prize. Simon, what do you think the mystery prize is going to be today? And who is the prize for? Well, it's for all of us, I suppose. So I am going to introduce you today to a friend of mine. She's a solicitor. I've worked not directly with her, but we've had mutual clients from time to time for many years. And we're going to pick her brains a little bit about the world of faith and finance when it comes to the law. And to a certain degree, the law in Scotland. We may probe into that a little bit as well because it's different around the country. So let me say, Fiona Clark, you are our special guest today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? So my name is Fiona. I work as a solicitor and in particular, the area that I work in is private client, which to someone who's not familiar with the name of legal departments, is the law around personal estates, so things like wills, powers of attorney, trusts, tax planning, dealing with estates when people pass away and planning for incapacity and ill health and that sort of thing. I am Aberdeen born and bred and I work in a law firm called Burnus Paul and we're a Scotland-wide law firm with offices in Aberdeen, Glasgow and Edinburgh. And we would love to know not just about what you do, Fiona, but a little bit about who you are and particularly your journey with Jesus and what that looks like in your life. So how did you become a Christian? I became a Christian during my teenage years. I did attend our local church as a child, went to the Sunday school, but very much did that as something that just as a family we had always done. I didn't have any faith or any real understanding at that stage. Just thoroughly enjoyed going and playing with the other children and doing nativity plays and all the different things that came with it. It wasn't until my teenage years when my mum, myself and my brother all joined a local Baptist church in Aberdeen and I became part of the Bible class is what we called it there. That was our ministry for secondary school aged young people and I had just wonderful leaders that were part of that ministry. Sarah and Derek, who I'm still very close to, and they were just really fantastic, inspirational leaders for young people. So my journey to know Christ and to commit my life to him was very much not one of those where there's a big bang, a big moment of, that's it, I'm a Christian. I can't actually pinpoint when it happens. It's always a slightly not quite as interesting story as those who have a clap of thunder moment. But it was very much a slow burn, a slow learning, coming to know him through the love of others and through the example of those that led me during those teenage years. See, I think every story is an interesting story because it gives people permission to think, that's a bit like me, actually. I just one day realized I was a Christian. Not sure when it happened, but here we go. Everyone, doesn't matter how you get there, just get there in the end. Okay, a different question might be the same answer. Have you always wanted to be a solicitor? Was there, a, again, a blinding moment of revelation, that's the career for me, or did you just one day discover, oh, here I am, working as a solicitor? <laughs> Actually, I would say a lot of people in my career were exactly that second one. The number of people who are just like, just found myself there. I think one of the main reasons for that is if you do fairly well academically at school, there's very often a discussion about, okay, so law or medicine, which one are you going to choose? And I think sometimes that is what leads people into one or the other. 
medicine was never ever ever going to happen for me I am very squeamish and I already kind of had an idea that I'd probably quite enjoy the law I've always enjoyed academic side of studies I really like learning and particularly I like languages English studying text and so I always thought that law seemed like it would be a bit like that and when I started studying it I very quickly discovered that I absolutely loved it which is probably not the case again for quite a lot of solicitors it's very dry, particularly at the beginning when you're studying it. But the way my brain works, I quite like that. Studying and breaking down all the different bits of law and the different rules and different cases. And, and I found that really enjoyable. In terms of how I then became a solicitor in the area that I'm in, which I think is almost the more important distinction, I very much knew quite early on that if I was going to be a lawyer, I wanted to do something that helped other people. And so I always knew I would end up doing something along the lines of what I'm doing now or family law maybe or something that was very much helping people with their personal situations that they come across and getting them out the other end hopefully in a better place. So yeah that I think is where my faith and probably also just my personality led me to that side of the law. See, I never had that conversation, Bex, did you, with your teachers? I did. Oh, did. <laughs> yeah, I had that conversation and no I way. said languages <laughs> and everyone went, oh. I'm the odd one out here. See, I even did A-level law. And the problem I had is I couldn't do dates. I couldn't remember dates. And so many of the exams were, what was the case? Which court was it in? What was the principle and what date? And I couldn't get that fourth bit. So I was, I was stymied from the end. Give me numbers, just don't give me dates. Fiona, I was really interested in what you said about how you viewed law as wanting to help people. And I imagine there must be times where within the profession that's almost felt slightly countercultural potentially or just a different attitude towards other people. And so I'm interested in what that looks like and also how your faith interacts with your job on a daily or weekly basis. It is probably countercultural in certain parts of law for sure and also probably certain types of firms. I'm quite fortunate that the firm that I'm at is a really lovely firm and I'm not just saying that. There's genuinely a nice culture across the board, very nice colleagues, it's quite a collegiate atmosphere. People do want to work together, strive to do the best that we possibly can for each other. And picking the kind of law that I did has probably meant that I am teamed up with other people that are quite similar to me. So our team is just full of really nice people. And you don't go into this area of law if you're not the kind of person that wants to make connections with people, get to know them, help them. You need to be willing to support people and hold their hand during difficult times in their lives. And all of that needs a certain type of personality, I guess. And in terms of how my faith then interacts with all of that, a big thing for me, and it's always felt this way, is that I want to be almost like a bit of a light. I think a big part of me is living out my faith in the way that I behave, the way that I interact with other people, and the way that other people view me. I have almost a, not a mantra, but a goal that I would always have any interaction with anyone, whatever that interaction is, whether it's work or personal or, or anything at all, is that I want people to come out of that interaction with me feeling better or at the very least no worse than they did when they came into it. And I want to be that sort of person where I am building people up and making them feel positive and contributing in a good way to their lives and not the kind of person who pulls others down or makes them feel worse in any way. So I think a big part for me, at least, is actually just how I live and how I portray my values in the way I behave in the workplace and with my colleagues. And I would feel incredibly remiss to not pick your brains and ask for some wisdom. 
So for people listening, what would you consider to be top tips or essential knowledge that you would love to share with a wider audience than perhaps you see day to day or what would be helpful to know perhaps before people get to the point where they're talking to a lawyer? I've got a few top tips that I would have in mind, many of which I'm sure people may have heard before, but I think it is useful to get it firsthand from someone who's actually doing it day in, day out, and I can see where things tend to go wrong and where the trip hazards are. The first top tip is get your basic building blocks in place. So when you're coming to think about looking after what you have accumulated in terms of wealth, making sure that it goes where you would like, whether that's family, charity, church, friends, etc. The first thing you should be thinking about is just getting the basic documentation in place so that you've got a nice foundation to work away on. So get a will in place. It's still incredibly high percentages of people who don't have wills and there are still huge amounts of misunderstanding about the implications of not having one. Lots of the things that people believe, for example, that if you die without a will, everything will just automatically go to your spouse. That is not true. There are lots and lots of myths around this. And the fundamental thing with a will is that you decide where your assets go. You decide who's going to look after them. So you pick executors, which are the people who look after your assets when you die. And you also are able to provide any sort of protections that you might like to have in place. So if your beneficiaries are young and you want to make sure that they are not going to blow all your money at 18, then you can build something into your will to prevent that. If you have a beneficiary who has learning difficulties and you're concerned that they might be vulnerable, then again, you can build something in to protect that. So all of this is just groundwork that is so essential to what you're doing. The second building block, powers of attorney, again, just a really fundamental document that everyone should have in place. It is not just for someone who is old, quite the opposite. The story I always tell clients is a number of years ago, we saw a massive uptick in people coming for powers of attorney because a couple had featured on the one show and they were, I think, in their 30s and the husband had been in a car accident and he had lost mental capacity and everything was in his name. Bank accounts, house, car, utility accounts, just absolutely everything. And there was no power of attorney in place. And his wife realized at what was obviously an awful time that she could access and could deal with none of these things. And she had to go to court, which is what you have to do to get a guardianship order, which takes quite a number of months. It's very expensive, requires a judge to grant that order. All of that can be avoided if you have a power of attorney in place. So again, it's just a really fundamental building block. And the other fundamental building block that I always say to clients is pensions slash financial advice. So we always say to clients, where's your pension? And they say, I have no idea. And then say, who's looking after it? Oh, I don't know. And sometimes they can dig out some paperwork. And often it's just randomly invested with a large company, but it'll just be probably they ticked the middle box of medium risk. That seems reasonable. And that's about it. That's usually where they are at. And so just having a review of where are all of my assets? Are they being looked after? Have they been checked by someone qualified to do so? Or a financial advisor to look at these things and just to check that actually there aren't any gaping that just need sorted out as a first step. Fiona, is it ever appropriate to go for one of these free will offers or buy a write your own will pack from WH Smiths or do it online? That's actually one of my other top tips. Get proper advice. Absolutely do not. Please do not do a WH Smith will and please do not download something off the internet and fill in the blanks. 
I appreciate that that sounds coming from a solicitor like, oh, well, you know, give us the business. But there is a reason that we study for seven years to do what we do, because it is not as straightforward as the fill in the blank documents will suggest. There are lots and lots of laws, case law, interpretation, uh, legislation, all sorts of things that sit behind these documents that you might write a word in that mean nothing to you. But in case law, going back hundreds of years, it has a very particular meaning that is going to completely change the meaning of what you've just written down. And if you don't know that, then you're setting yourself up or rather you're setting your family up for a total disaster. The other thing is that these are often structured under English law. And as Simon touched on earlier, Scots law and English law are entirely different. Everything about them is different in terms of private client law. Wills are written entirely differently. They're even signed differently. There's just nothing about them that's the same. So if you fill in an English template will, there's a decent chance you might not even end up with a valid will in Scotland. And the other reason is that, in my personal opinion, a badly drafted will is just worse than no will. Because no will, we have rules. The law steps in and decides what's supposed to happen if there's no will. Those rules have been around forever. We know how they work. We follow a process. It goes where it goes according to those rules. And at least we know where we stand. Everyone knows where they stand. With a well-drafted will, similarly, we all know where we stand because it's nice and clear and set out. A badly drafted will just falls in the middle of those two things. You have a will, so you can't just fall back on what the law says because you do have a will. But if nobody can really interpret what that ultimately means, the only option, if it gets to it, is to go to court and get a judge to interpret what this correctly means. Because no executor that you appoint, so that's the person, usually family member typically, who's going to be looking after things for you, no executor is going to want to be at personal risk by going off and doing what they think is probably meant by this will because they would be personally liable if it all went wrong and no professional executor is going to do that either so if you have a lawyer or a law firm they're not going to do that either so it just ends up a mess frankly so either do it really well with a solicitor who's doing it properly or don't do it but don't do it. it's not really a great option but it's definitely absolutely not a good idea to self-draft or to take some sort of template and is it ever wise to have a power of attorney not because of mental incapacity are there other times when it might be useful to have one in place. A power of attorney is not only for incapacity. That's its primary purpose because it's obviously very useful if you lose capacity and you need someone to look after things for you. But we have a lot of clients who actually will need a power of attorney in place despite still having capacity. So they perhaps travel abroad a lot. They are perhaps away on business a lot. There might be any number of reasons that they need someone to be able to do things for them just because they're physically not around to do it. And the other reason is that we actually find in practice that most commonly powers of attorney start to be used by family to help someone out before they've actually lost mental capacity. More often than not, they're perfectly able to say what they would like. They're just not physically able to get out and about and do that anymore. They've maybe struggled with signing things now. They maybe can't hear on the phone anymore. They maybe aren't savvy with digital internet banking and things like that. And their local branches are all closing. And actually, they just need someone to help them out, not because they can't do it for themselves, but just because physically they're just not quite as able. So there are very good reasons to have that in place and ready to go, even although incapacity isn't imminently expected or anticipated at all. Super helpful. I would love to break it down to an even more practical level uh, before we move on. 
I am rapidly approaching 30 and there's beginning to be conversations in my friend groups about wills, do I really need one, what does that look like and so could you shed some wisdom on what kind of age you should start thinking about having a will or power of attorney or is that based on life stage so if you're married, if you have children, if you decide yep that's definitely something I should do, how you would go about doing that and roughly how much you could expect to pay in that process as well. So in terms of when do you make a will, there's no right or wrong answer to that because it is based probably more on life stage. Ultimately, you need to have something to leave and something to pass on. Most people have something, but often if it's not of high value, then they are generally going to be comfortable enough. As I touched on before, there are rules that decide where your assets go, and a lot of people will just be okay with that if they're not leaving significant assets. I think once you're at the stage of homeowner, married, children, that sort of thing, absolutely, I think at that stage, a will really ought to be considered. The main reason for that is depending on the level of wealth, it is not necessarily the case that it's going to go where you think. The rules are slightly complicated to explain verbally, but different chunks go to spouse, different chunks go to children, and it's not just a case of automatically all goes to spouse, for example. Fiona, is that the same in England and Scotland? I know we have listeners in England as well. It is different down in England. They have their own set of complicated rules. My advice actually in terms of England would be pretty similar is actually they are not straightforward just as they are here. It's not necessarily going to be going to where you think it will. So in either case, it would be my recommendation that once you're married, homeowner, a little bit of asset value there, that you ought to be looking at getting a will in place. I think having children should definitely be a trigger for it. Main reason for that is just a protective one. If you leave something to a child and you don't have a will, so say they inherit under the law but not under a will, and if you do not provide for what you want to happen to that, so if you don't say it is to be held until they reach age 25 or 21 or whatever you'd like to pick, then it is the age of capacity that applies. In Scotland, that's age 16. So quite a lot of clients, in fact, pretty much every client I ever speak to, does not wish a young person of 16 to be receiving, inheriting what could be the value of your house plus what you've saved in your bank accounts. I mean, that could potentially be a pretty decent chunk for most people to be passing to a 16-year-old. So even if it's just a basic will, which provides for making sure you've got executors in place that you trust and are going to look after things, making sure it's going where you'd like, making sure your children are protected suitably by provisions to make sure they don't blow all your money, then those basics, when you're still at a relatively early stage of life, I think are important. What comes to mind then, Fiona, is I would recommend for people in that situation to be thinking about, let's say, for example, life insurance to pay off a mortgage if they die unexpectedly, mortgage is paid off. Because even before you feel wealthy, it might be that your children, even young children, could inherit the value of a house and pensions and bank account and car, whatever else. But if they're under the age of capacity, they can't enter into contracts themselves, can they? So if you haven't got a will that says who's looking after the children, what happens to the wealth that they have that they can't do anything with? You're absolutely right. You're in something of a catch-22 because they are technically adults and therefore they can hold assets. And strictly speaking, they're allowed to enter into contracts, but those contracts can be set aside I think it's between 18 and 21 that they can apply to have them set aside. So any transaction they enter into between 16 and 18 can later be applied to be set aside if it's considered to have been prejudicial to their interests. 
And realistically, if they've sold you a house and then they come back at 19 going, hang on a minute, I didn't understand what I was doing. I'm going to have this set aside. You're really in for a bit of trouble. And for that reason, I suspect that most solicitors just wouldn't deal with a 16, 17 year old in the sale of a house, for example, because it's simply just too high risk. So you do get left with someone who is stuck with an asset that they own but can't really do anything with, can't really deal with. And that's another very, very good reason why you want to have a will in place because what we would do in the will is create a trust which would say until this young person gets to the age and that's whatever age the person who made the will chooses, but say 23 for argument's sake, it's quite a popular one nowadays. So it says it'll be held in trust until they get to 23 and you select who those trustees are. And so those are going to be adults who you trust, who you're comfortable, are going to look after your children appropriately, look after their money appropriately. And then once they hit 20, then they will pass it on to them. And it doesn't lock it away completely. It can be accessible for them. So those trustees that you've picked could use the money to help them out with education fees, rent while they're at university, whatever it might be. It just means the decision is being made by an adult rather than by a young person inexperienced with money. Okay, back to Bex's last question. Give us an idea on money, please, Fiona. I would love to, but it's almost impossible to say because every firm will charge slightly differently and the complexity of wills vary quite radically depending on what's involved. So what I would generally say to clients is if you do have a need for a will and if it's relatively straightforward, particularly if you're perhaps young and you're not looking to do anything overly complex, then generally shopping around and getting some quotes and getting some ideas of fees is is the best way to begin. You are looking at hundreds of pounds. I would say a few hundred is ballpark. Park, but it will differ quite significantly between firms and between the kind of document that you need, your assets, and so on. There you go. Hundreds, Bex, not, not thousands. Okay. Well, I can stop my <laughs> Monzo pot collecting anymore. I'm all set for my will now. Right. Let's hand back to you, Fiona. They were the building blocks, the basics. If we want to go beyond that, where do we go next in terms of legal wisdom? The other point that I wanted to raise in terms of top tips, and we have touched on this a wee bit already, was around getting proper advice. So we've touched on the fact that please don't do a WH Smith packet will, please take proper advice with that. But that proper advice should actually really be across the board. So one of the things that we will often have people looking to do is perhaps to make gifts onto their family during their lifetime, a perfectly legitimate way to manage your finances. For a lot of people, if they know they have enough, and that's where Simon would come in and his side of things, looking at how much do you have, what are your needs, circumstances, what do you need for the future, how much can you afford to potentially give away. A lot of clients, they actually get a lot of pleasure out of giving away at that early stage and enjoying seeing their family benefit from it. But what we would always say is take advice before doing that. I'm not talking about small sums here, but I'm speaking about things like I'm going to give my house to my children. We get a lot of clients coming in with that sort of an idea. And often when we dig into it, we'll say, right, okay, let's take a step back. What are your objectives here? Why do you want to do that? And quite often the objectives are misguided or misunderstood in terms of what they're actually going to achieve. So they may think it's going to save them tax. It probably isn't. It could, but it probably isn't. They may think that it's going to be effective and they're never going to pay care home fees, for example. Again, there's absolutely no guarantees there. And often what we find is that the genesis of that whole idea has usually come from, oh, but Bill Down the Road did it. And you've got to go, okay, that's brilliant. And that's maybe absolutely the right thing for Bill to have done. But his circumstances and your circumstances are not the same. And it's trying to make sure that people take proper advice for their own circumstances, because the solution for one person will not be the right solution for another person. 
And typically what you're thinking about are a whole raft of different implications that are all going to potentially cross over each other. So tax, inheritance, and actually who things are going to go to at the end of the day. Lots of different taxes, I should say. So inheritance tax, capital gains tax, income tax, those all cross over. And quite often what's right for one is not right for the other. You quite often have to almost accept a bad outcome on one and a positive outcome on the other to get a sort of balance. Other things that people won't necessarily think about are legal rights, which are essentially a right in Scotland that applies that means you cannot disinherit your children or spouse, no matter what you say in your will. Those are going to come into play potentially. And then just things like if you're gifting to someone, you have to be aware of the seven year rule, which I'm sure people will have heard of, where if you die within seven years, the value of that asset can still be brought back into your estate for tax purposes. Other things, again, it crosses over are things like control. If you're giving something away, can you definitely afford to give up the control to that asset? Do you need it? If it's your home, are you sure that it's secure for you to continue to live in, despite the fact that you might not own it anymore? Another thing that crosses over is choice. If you haven't enough assets left and you later need something, then you are robbing yourself of choice by getting rid of things, assets, money that you actually might need later in life. Again, that comes back to not giving away more than you can actually afford to give away. So all of these things just are integral and there are implications one way or the other with almost everything that a client looks to do. And so for that reason, get proper advice is definitely one of my top tips. Don't just bash on and do something. It may well be that the advisor goes, yep, that's fine. I think that's all very sensible. Happy to go ahead with that. But it's worth taking the time to just piece apart what the objectives are, what you're trying to achieve, and whether your proposed course of action is definitely going to achieve that, because it's fairly often not quite what people think it is. So what I'm hearing here is, Fiona mentioned earlier, she spent seven years studying to to get into the law, I suppose, become a solicitor, and has spent many, many years after that doing her continuing professional development, no doubt, learning on the job, day in, day out, week in, week out. Now, I've probably spent hundreds of hours, shall we say, learning matters that are dipping my toe into Fiona's area of expertise. And the more I learn, the more I realize that I don't know. I think that's one of the signs of wisdom. You know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And so I'm getting more and more comfortable in taking my clients to someone like Fiona and saying, look, I can begin to direct you, but you need proper advice. And I am not a solicitor. I am not an accountant, but I have trusted partners that I might work with who can give you the advice that you need in that area. So if you're listening just now and thinking, oh, some of the things that Fiona's mentioned there, maybe I've gone down that route of, oh, well, so-and-so said it was okay to do. So I think I'll do it as well. But you haven't got a solicitor that you know. The last time you used one was to buy a house and it was very transactional. Fiona, how do we go about finding a solicitor to work with? There's loads of you out there, and some of you are blooming expensive. So give us a top tip. If we wanted to work with someone like you, private client, wills, powers of attorneys, trust work, giving gifts, how do we find you? Not just you, people like you. Helpfully, for clients who are looking for this type of advice in particular, we have an organisation called STEP which is the Society of Trusts and Estate Practitioners, of which I am a member, as are you, Simon, I believe. So STEP is an organization for people who are specifically in this area of practice, not necessarily just on the legal side, um, obviously on the financial side, some might be accountants, tax advisors, you get a range of people, but they're all looking at personal wealth, legal planning advice, that side of things. 
And everyone who is a trust and estate practitioner at TEP will have passed a number of exams in the area. They will have had to get certain qualifications in order to be registered as a qualified practitioner. And they will also have had to have a certain level of number of years experience and experience in the correct area and so on. So that's a really good place to start because if you go on to the STEP website, do a bit of digging around practitioners in your area, you're immediately going to be whittling down to those who have done those subsequent qualifications. So I've done my law degree, we do a postgraduate year, and then we work as a trainee solicitor for two years. So I've done all of that, as has every other solicitor. But in private client in particular, we subsequently go on to then do the STEP qualifications. So it's a whole different set of qualifications on top of being qualified as a lawyer. So the STEP website, it's a really good place to go. The other place that I would recommend, maybe almost as a cross-check so that you can get a little bit of information and feedback, is there are two different legal directories that operate, which are there to rank and provide commentary on lawyers, both different law firms and also then particular lawyers within those. So they are called Legal 500 and Chambers and Partners. Again, they can be really good resources to go and have a look at. The other thing is that all firms in which private client lawyers practice do have an obligation to provide information on their invoicing or how they charge. And so anyone that you're then looking at should have information on their website, which gives you guidance on how their charges work so that you can get a sense of cost and what's the right fit for you. Brilliant. I feel a little bit left out of the step club, but I'm glad (laughs) that I now know how to access the help that I very clearly need. Fiona, thank you so much for being with us today. Is there anything final that you want to throw out? Anything you think, oh, you should have asked me about this and you didn't? The only other thing, and it just picks up on actually something that Simon mentioned, I think it's really worth mentioning because I think Simon and I would probably have similar views on it, is the importance of communication in all of these areas, partly between advisors. Myself, Simon, other advisors in this sort of area, we really like working together for our clients. It's actually really nice to all be around the table together working for our clients together. And I think a lot of clients silo their different advisors into different pots and then actually it's not very joined up. So communication between and among advisors and actually trying to make sure that you're making those introductions and getting your advisors to know each other is really useful. But the other thing is actually communication with your family and friends appreciating that everyone's circumstances will be different but usually those people who are the least worried and the most comfortable with how things are going to go in terms of their future planning are those who do have quite nice positive open lines of communication with their friends with their family with those who are going to be dealing with things and a nice level of openness about I've made my will this is where it is this is my financial advisor would you like to meet them I think often people are uncomfortable or don't want to talk about these things, whereas actually often once the conversation opened up, it can be really a relief, I guess, for quite a lot of people. So yeah, communication would be my final top tip that I wanted to throw out there. Well, Bex, I reckon that episode is one maybe to pin. I think this is one people might want to pass on to others. So if you're at home and thinking to yourself, oh, my parents need to hear this kind of stuff, or my husband or wife, or my children, or my friends just need to hear this stuff, this could be your moment to pass on to your world the Where Your Treasure Is podcast. Because, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to Bex Elder, somebody who turned down a career in law to pursue languages. Simon Glazier, somebody who was never even offered a career in law because he didn't have the grades. And Fiona Clark, solicitor, nay partner at Burness Paul Solicitors, our resident expert, full of faith and stewardship wisdom. Fiona, thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure having you here today. Thank you.
And thank you for such a brilliant conversation today and for all your wisdom. I have no doubt we'll be picking up on more of these threads as we continue to discuss various elements of faith and finance and where the law interacts with that. And if you have specific questions that have been raised through this episode, you can send us an email to whereyourtreasureis at freerangepodcasting.co.uk or you can drop us a message on Instagram at whereyourtreasureispodcast. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll tune in next time. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you where you and your podcast want to go.